Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, May 2nd, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. I'm Guy Iro, and today we're going to be talking about a fish that's native to Hawaii. It's known locally as moi, but also as the six-finger threadfin. The Latin name for this species is Polydactylus sexphilus, which translates literally to a lot of fingers, six fingers. We're very pleased to welcome two very special guests today from Hawaii, and I'm going to actually let you guys introduce yourselves today. Yeah, aloha. My name is Uncle Matt Poipoi, and I uh, come from the island of Molokai in Hawaii, and I'm just here to talk story with you folks about Moi. And aloha. My name is Hi'ile Cavello. I work at Hi'eia Fish Pond for a nonprofit that cares for the fish pond called Pai Pai O Hi'eia. And I live down the road, about five miles in the Ahupua'a of Kahalu'u. Awesome. Welcome, you two. We're very happy to have you. This fish has very specific Hawaiian names for different parts of their life cycle, correct? Correct. I know they go through five different stages of growth. According to the Hawaiian name, it's uh, Moili'i, which is the juvenile. Then we have Manamoi. The Manamoi is the male. At that stage, they're all male. Then the next stage is Palamoi. They start to change sex at that stage. So from male, they're going to turn to female. And they, they're about two years old, around that age. And when they finally turn female, they're just about three years old. And that's the final stage. And the fifth stage is they're going to be eaten. Mm-hmm. That's, um, so this is, I think, the first hermaphrodite fish we've had on the show. And that's kind of an interesting piece of their biology that I'm guessing kind of ties in with their conservation. So you mentioned you eat them after kind of that last stage. Can one of you guys speak to that a little bit more in terms of how their biology ties in with some of the conservation work that you guys are doing? Yeah, so I can, I can talk a little bit about that. During the spawning season, we tend to take the, the males more than the females because um, you have more males than females. And you need a ratio of about 10 males to one female to have successful spawning. So we take the males at that time and we leave the females that allow them to spawn. And after, after the spawning season, you, you can harvest females if you want, but most of the people, because we conservationists, the real Hawaiian fishermen, Lawaii, we all know the stages that they go through. We have a tendency to leave the bigger fish alone. In a Western way uh, of harvesting, they're allowed to harvest after they spawn. Sometimes it doesn't match up because you're taking a lot of the broodstock. And like I said, that's the final stage of growth. When they reach moi, there's nothing else that can replace them after you take them, except the upcoming generation. The basic science of knowing what's happening with the fish, their behavior, what's happening at different times, the different events they go through, helps out to make wise decisions in management. For me and the work that I do, our organization, Pai Pai Oheia, has been, has been working to restore Heia Fish Pond, which is an 88-acre, 800-year-old traditional Hawaiian fish pond, which is traditionally a form of aquaculture. And 
little bit different from Uncle the Moy that we see in the pond here. He was talking about that ideal ratio of 10 to 1 male to female ratio for a healthy reproductive population. For us at the fish pond, what we see is we have a lot of big moi, a lot of big mature female moi. And some of them are males. Some of them are males uh, mixed in there. But, you know, we're all, for myself speaking, I'm a student of Uncle Max and many of us young Hawaiians out there in conservation are also students of Uncle Max. So we learn, we're learning from him. He has pointed out for me and us here at the fish pond that what we need to start seeing are more males in the population so that they can be spawning. So the limiting factor for us is we don't see much recruitment. We don't see much of the juveniles along our shoreline. It's great to see the big, healthy females, you know, four pounds or so in the fish pond by the hundreds. But what we'd like to see is more of a healthy distribution of males and females so that we can kind of start to see better recruitment along our shorelines. Historically, what was the purpose of the aquaculture, uh, the, the pond that you were doing, and how have you seen that changed over the years with the approach to aquaculture for this species? Oh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to. Filter, I, I'm filtered or unfiltered version. Yeah. So, you know, when I talk about traditional Hawaiian aquaculture, I'm talking about Hawaiian fish ponds. And, you know, at their peak, you know, maybe 100 to 200 years ago, there were upwards of 400 fish ponds found throughout the Hawaiian archipelago. Of course, obviously, due to development and, you know, making way for residential neighborhoods and military airstrips, you know, a lot of the fish ponds in Hawaii have been filled in or are no longer or have fallen into disrepair. So I would say of that 400 number, we're lucky if we have 50 to 60 fish ponds remaining. And luckily, many of the fish ponds are undergoing some kind of restoration. All of us are a part of a network that KUA helps to convene called the Hui Malama Lokoi'a. In contrast to traditional Hawaiian aquaculture, there is modern aquaculture. And the, the net pen culture of moi that took place in the 90s is, is some of that. I would say that it strived to be kind of like a hybrid, hybrid of modern aquaculture and traditional aquaculture. So they were producing and hatching fingerlings and stocking those fish, those moi fingerlings into these offshore sea cages. The offshore sea cages and the use of them to cultivate moi is no longer in existence, but they are currently being used to grow other species of fish like kona kampachi and nenue. But primarily those are off of the big islands, Kona Coast. I was reading and I saw somewhere that or I actually saw in many places that this was like the fish of the kings that only the very elite were allowed to eat them. So I'm curious, were these pens being used to raise fish for those people or were they something that the common people could access as well? I'd be curious to hear Uncle Max's um, take on this, but in my opinion, if you're going to get the maka'ainana or the commoners, as we say, back in the day, 
to build these 88-acre, 200, 500-acre fish ponds and um, reserve a species of fish just for the elite or for the ali'i, I find that difficult to believe. I would say, you know, though in certain communities, in certain areas, maybe that was the case. But I don't think that was a generalization. That's not a generalization that could be made. I think the point is that this fish was so delicious. <laughs> it was so prized by the people. I think that story sometimes went along with that. But I'd be interested to hear what Uncle Mac has to say about that. Were the moi only reserved for the ali'i or the chiefly class? At one time, it was kapu for only the, the ali'i. They weren't raised in a pond to serve that purpose. In fact, I don't see any recording of any pond that was purposely just for raising moi. I think the moi was just abundant on the outside. They love to come near the fish pond because like every other fish, the gate system, the macaw at the fish pond, support all these fish with oxygen. Yeah, as far as the kapu just for the, for the king, yeah, at a period in time, there was a kapu. And there was also a kapu that the ladies couldn't eat the moi also, just the males. So in modern times, yeah, all of that is open to, you know, for us to share. These are some massive sizes that you're talking about being made. Are, are these like modified lagoons that are built up by a wall? Or how exactly are these things constructed? So much easier to show you than to like describe it. But there's actually six different types of Hawaiian fish ponds. There's two different types that are coastal. So it's a walled pond. The wall in its entirety is man-made called dry stack masonry. You know, there's no mortar used in the construction of these ponds. So you can imagine shoreline, right? Coastline. Most of these ponds are built like a semicircle. So they, they go from one point along the shoreline, semicircular fashion, and meet up along the coastline down the way at another point. Our pond at Heia was built in a full circle. So our wall goes for 1.3 miles, all man-made, dry stack masonry, a lot of material. At its base, it's 15 feet wide. At its height, it's 11 feet wide, about five feet high from the sediment floor up, probably like three feet above the high water mark. The pond is shallow, so it's very tidal though not as tidal as Alaska by any means. Our tides go up and down maybe three feet. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> but, but that's big, that's major for us, you know. On a low tide, the pond will be like knee deep. On a high tide, it'll be, you know, chest high. And the point of that is the fish that we're trying to cultivate in the pond are herbivores that eat phytoplankton. Moy is definitely not an herbivore. It is a carnivore. It eats crustaceans and, you know, small crustaceans, big crustaceans, other fish as well. But we try to create a diverse ecosystem within the fish pond. A healthy ecosystem is a diverse ecosystem. So we're not monoculturing mullet or ava, which is milkfish, but uh, that's, that's why we have moy in our pond. So, 
So our, our wall is long, 1.3 miles, but we have about seven gates. And those are the makaha that uncle was talking about. And that's where we see the moi during the summer months, warm summer months, pretty much April, all the way through September, October. They'll be at the gates like clockwork on a rising tide. And then when it's not warm summer months and, you know, the moi are in the pond foraging around. And then again, April, May comes around and there you go. We didn't see them for all those six months, colder months of the year. And then in May, all of a sudden, there they are again. So, you know, sometimes we think like, oh, they come and go or they swim out of the pond and then they come back. But no, they're in there. It's just the water's so murky often that you don't typically see them except when they're at the gates. A lot of people don't realize that this fish is a carnivorous fish. So that's part of the reason why they never raise them in a pond, because they would eat the little fishes of the other species. Although the Hawaiians used to leave barracuda in the pond, and a barracuda's purpose was to thin out the weak species so that you keep the pond clean. Yeah. And the DNA, preserve the DNA so you don't have weak stock. That's a really, yeah, when you think about aquaculture, kind of the Western style of raceways and net pens, it is very monoculture. But what you're talking about does seem very balanced and cool with these different species in there and kind of like a little ecosystem operating here. That's cool. So the whole system itself is a balanced system from the mountain all the way down to the ocean. Yeah. The water that come down from the sky went end up in the ocean somehow. And the people figured out the mixture that was perfect to raise certain algae that feed the fish. And they would know how much fish they can raise according to all that. They positioned the pond in one area where they can capture that rather than the thing just washing out and dispersing and not being used and everything maintain a certain balance so that this section of land can provide what they should be providing towards the end product, which is raising healthy fish. In modern times, fish is a commodity. That's how everybody treats fish. It's a commodity. In the Hawaiian Lavaya system, fish is our food. And that food is very sacred. You know? Everything that we do is sacred. What's the history of community use of these ponds? Historically, there were not many, but a few families, you know, for a pond of this size, for one family to take care of it, it would not be feasible. So there were different families that lived around the fish pond and they would work the fish pond and the fish that were harvested, you know, was shared within the ahupua'a, within the watershed and exchanged for goods like taro and ulu and, and sweet potato. Yeah, so their profession was that they were mahi'i'a, which is fish farmers, yeah, as opposed to lavai'a, which is fishermen, fishermen. So their profession was to tend to this fish pond to know what fish are recruiting and coming through the gates and what fish were ready for harvest, harvest those fish, distribute them to um, who needed them for whatever other, you know, food crops were needed in exchange. Yeah, the fish pond was intended to not replace fishing. It was always intended to supplement. 
due to kind of like the rising uh, population and numbers of people living within different ahupua'a. So another thing that'd be a whole lot easier to show people than try and describe over the air is just what this fish looks like. Because <laughs> the only thing that I can think to describe is it looks like a combination of like a hyodontid moon eye gold eye with a mullet with the little front little dealies of a sea robin. And a, a cute little nose. It's got a Well, the nose looks nose. similar to the hyodontids, kind of, <laughs> although I hear it's like this gelatinous thing, which I don't believe is the case with those moon eyes. So if you could describe it, it's great. And then also specifically, what are these threads that are coming off it? Because they're posterior to the gill plate, so they're not barbels, but they're anterior to the pelvic and pectoral fins, so they're probably, they don't seem like they'd be fin rays, but that's the only thing I could think they are, so... Please answer these questions for me. <laughs> Uncle, that's you. Okay. The barbels is, uh, they use that to stir up the bottom because they, they're mainly bottom feeders and they have six of them. And that's a scientific name that they use to describe this fish. It's probably something sexophilic, <laughs> polydactyrus, whatever, you know. But yeah, I don't go there. <laughs> I, I just call them moi, simply moi. What about this fish is so special to you and to the people of Hawaii? I know we've mentioned a little bit, but is there more we can kind of learn about the importance of this particular fish? I've been working with this fish my whole life. And, you know, sometimes I think about getting away and doing other, other projects or different species. But with climate change, it's brought on a whole new episode in the changes that are occurring right now with the fish. Actually, this fish is an indicator for me. I see what's happening with this fish, and I can look at other species that require similar habitat and similar habits that they go through. So with climate change, what is so neat about it is we have warming, yeah, global warming. And the water of the temperature is ideal for these fish to spawn at an extended period. So they spawn, rather than spawning just three months, they spawn in for five months. The question for me was, oh, then we're going to have more fish. And at that time, to be honest, I told everybody, I don't know. This is new. And I don't know how many scientists are working on this. I would say zero because <laughs> I don't hear about it. I don't see anything being written. You know, usually in Hawaii, everybody knows. So a lot of the studies that I do is, traditional and customary, you know, practices that I employ. And it takes a lot of time. I don't work with a microscope. I don't do genetics or any of this fancy stuff that they can do in a lab. My lab is right there, right in front of my eyes. There's a lot of stuff that I don't know. I think that's the reason why we have this group, that we come together and we share ideas and stuff like healing, learning upon. I can learn from her or whoever else that's involved with this group. Can one of you speak to that group and that network of people working together to kind of manage and conserve these fish locally? Like, what's this group all about? I feel like Uncle Mac is better qualified to talk about this group, but I, I will. So we meet, we meet monthly with Uncle Mac, and there's different individuals from different communities throughout Hawaii, you know, Big Island, Kauai folks, Molokai folks, Maui. All of us are younger than Uncle Mac, and we all have a lot to learn. 
but we meet with him and we talk about different fish, but most of the time we end up talking about moi. And, you know, for him, he's really concerned about climate change, right? And just wanting to make sure that we will continue to see moi on our dinner plates for years and years and years to come, right? We have different projects that we're working on, you know, in our different communities, but really it's just a learning opportunity and we share seasonally, you know, things happen differently from island to island, from Ahupua'a to Ahupua'a. Yeah, we just get together to learn and talk story and it's been great. But, you know, I, I think I just want to talk to you about the difference between Oahu <laughs> And an island like Molokai, right? Oahu is the most overpopulated island we have in Hawaii. And as such, right? Like for me, I never grew up eating moi. I grew up eating mullet. I caught a moi one time on camping trip on Kapapa Island and I was stoked. I went to school and I ended up working at the Oceanic Institute where we were hatching tagging and releasing moi for the purpose of stock replenishment around Oahu. For us on Oahu, all fish is good fish because here everybody is competing for whatever fish is out there, you know? And so the fact that we have large numbers of moi in our pond and mullet and other species too, for me is a, a good sign and something that I can learn from. Currently, the moi that we see are predating upon crustaceans and, and even the barracuda in the, pond, um, in the pond and the jacks in the pond, they're also predating upon crustaceans primarily. But the day that they start predating upon the desirable species that we want to grow, like mullet fingerlings, then um, we might have to reconsider, do we want our pond to be full of moi or full of barracuda or full of papio? Maybe not. But for us now, you know, to do the work of fish pond restoration is hard work. 20 years of cutting invasive species down like mangrove and rebuilding walls. So for us, when we see fish, we're always happy to see fish. You, you mentioned a word. I'm wondering what it means. Uh, uh, it was a, a pua'a. And, you know, it gets me thinking, you know, the state fish, is it related somehow? What does that word mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or am I looking at something that's not there at all? No, no, you, I hope you, I didn't you, offend you. Heard you. It. you got good ears. <laughs> you have great ears. You did hear a word in there. Um, the word is pua'a, and pua'a is a pig. But the word that I'm using to uh, talking to about is ahu pua'a, right? Oh, man, that's like a history lesson in and of itself. I don't know if I want to go there, but... Ahupua'a, for our purposes here, is the watershed as defined by uh, basically it goes from the tippity tops of our um, mountain peaks all the way down and inclusive of um, our stream systems, our wetlands, our taro fields, areas where we grow our food crops, areas where we grow our animals, raise our animals, and they extend to the shoreline, and even out beyond into the reef, about three miles out. But the idea being that all of the resources that you need for survival are contained within that geographic system. In ancient times, people lived in an ahupua'a, 
and they did not venture much outside of their ahupua'a proper. So in that way, you could ensure that the resources of that area were cared for and stewarded in perpetuity. That's nice. You kind of have these demarcations and then responsibility for the resources within those. It was very kind of clearly defined. That's neat. You've mentioned how important this fish is to you culturally as a food source, more than just a commodity. I'm curious if you're, it's this summertime, you're out there and you're really feeling like you want to have a moy to eat. How do you actually go about extracting that fish, harvesting it from the pond and then actually preparing it to eat? Okay, first of all, that's when the moy is coupled during the summer months. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. When you're harvesting them, when you're supposed to harvest them. Okay, so the summer months, the, the three months during the summer, is couple. You're not supposed to take moy. They're spawning, in other words. So after spawning, you can, you can capture the fish if you want, but the fish don't stick around. They move. And they move to places where not too many people know. So it's not going to be easy to get unless you're from Molokai, where there's not too many, too, too much dis- disturbance to the fishing grounds. The moe is going to hang around a little bit longer. So do you use a hook and line to catch them or a net? Or is it, how, do you, how would you go about getting one and then preparing it? So the way they catch them is mainly with a throw net. It's a cast net, yeah. And uh, hook and line, they bite, they bite the hook and line. Some people lay net, panel net, out in the open ocean or on a reef, and they capture the fish by the gills. There's other ways that I would, I would share with you guys, but it's not a way that we usually capture the fish, like with a big loader, a machine loader, yeah. So uh, we did that one time, and um, they were trapped on a beach. They came in on a high tide, over the sand berm, and as the tide receded, they got stuck in the sand. Mm-hmm. So the guy came down to work to harvest sand, and he saw a fish trapped in the... So he's coping with a bucket, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, that's hilarious. There's so many ways you can take them. So, so how would you go about cooking it? So it's a really good eating fish. There's plenty of different ways to cook them. We fry them. You can um, make soup. Yeah, boil them. Or you can eat them raw, yeah, steam. Steam is probably the best way people like to eat them, yeah. So there's almost as many ways to eat them as there is to catch them. For myself, I don't don't really have a favorite way to eat them. If I eat them, I'm happy any which way. (laughs) Any way you cook it, you cannot cannot damage it. You know, you cannot cook it wrong. I mean, you've never met me before, Uncle Matt. (laughs) I can mess up all kinds of fish. I got to be careful about that, yeah. But... No, any way you make them, they always come out good. That's amazing. That's all I can say. I mean, I never came across one junk moe to eat. In my family, I grew up eating steamed steamed fish primarily. So steamed mullet, steamed moe is like our favorite. I mean, it's just a delicate, it's just a delicate meat, right? And I think that's why you can't go wrong in the way you cook it. My favorite recipe, because you guys know Chinese restaurants, you order cold ginger chicken, right? But it's the cold ginger chicken sauce that I think is what makes it so good. So the, what I like to do is I'll score the moi, deep fry it because I like the crispy. Mm. Texturally, I like the crispy. 
But then I like the taste of that cold ginger chicken sauce. So I'll make the cold ginger chicken sauce, have it on the side. And I'll just eat my fish, you know, with a chopstick, with a little bit of that cold ginger chicken sauce. And that's like one of my favorites. That sounds amazing. Another one is when you're camping, you know, you just put the fish in tea leaf or piece of foil and, and steam it in the foil over, over the coals. Yeah. Get hungry. Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> I have I know we're kind of wrapping up here. I have one final question. And it's really about if you guys have any final thoughts to share about taking care of food systems in Hawaii and what you'd like people to know, either locally in Hawaii or more broadly in other states. The message, the common message is always. Just take what you need. Don't overharvest because for Hawaii in particular, we we depend on outside resources to feed our people. And we want to get away from that. We want to create our own food security. And this is part of it, learning about this. And um, hopefully people can, especially the young generation, can learn, learn this and um, not be greedy and take too much. Just be pono. Yeah, that's why that's, that's why we like to tell people be porno. Just to add to what Uncle Max said, yes, totally agree with what he just said. But also in addition, is is about our freshwater, right? Like we live on islands that are very remote in the middle of the Pacific, and our ecosystems here in Hawaii are so fragile and extremely dependent on the rainfall that we get. And the nearshore fisheries and the estuaries surrounding our islands and even our pelagic fish are dependent on that same water. And that same water is our drinking water. And so our resources here are by no means infinite. Right? They're very much finite. And so I think the message to folks, especially all of you listeners out there, if you are visiting Hawaii, just be a, be a Pono visitor, be a good visitor. Embrace the culture here and the people here. So we thank you in advance. That's a great message. Thank you for that. Did we miss anything? Is there anything that you guys wanted to say that we haven't covered? I think that was a really neat conversation. No. No. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> Perfect. Um, a very Hawaiian way of ending things. We're done. <laughs> we really appreciate having you two on and we'd like to say get out there and enjoy all the fish and be sure to be a good visitor when you do so, especially in Hawaii. It's awesome having you. Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. Mahalo you folks for having us. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>